On this week's 51%, we continue our series on women in business. Capital Region restaurateur Anissa Wahid reflects on the success of her growing restaurant chain, Tara Kitchen. You have to trust the people that you're working with. If you feel you're the only one who can make the best dish possible, you're never going to expand. And Laura Mann, Vice President of Business Resources for the Capital Region Chamber of Commerce, offers up some advice on how to start your business. Coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. This week, we're continuing our series on women in business, specifically women entrepreneurs. The Census Bureau says women owned only 19.9% of the businesses that employed people in the U.S. in 2018, but the numbers are steadily growing. Our first guest today is an award-winning chef and restaurateur here in the Capital Region. For over a decade, Anissa Wahid has been cooking what she calls Moroccan comfort food for everyone, including vibrant stews or tagines, as well as staples like spaghetti and meatballs, but with a Moroccan twist. Wahid and her husband opened their first restaurant, Tara Kitchen, in downtown Schenectady in 2012. And while restaurants are widely thought to be a risky venture, the chain has since grown to four total locations in both the Capital Region and New Jersey, with plans for further expansion in the near future. Tara Kitchen is a frequent winner in Capital Region Living's annual Besties, and Wahid herself has been named a rising star chef and one of the Albany Business Review's Women Who Mean Business. She's also been featured multiple times on Food Network and has her own product line of jarred sauces. Wahid says she never really saw herself becoming a restaurateur. Her family moved to the U.S. from India when she was a teenager, and she actually spent over a decade working in publishing in New York City. But she wasn't content in a corporate workplace and wanted something that would give her more control over both her career and life. I've always been a very troubled, confused type of person because when I was in high school and when you know, early on, even in like middle grade school, if someone asked me, what do you want to do when, you, when you're old? I never had a goal. I, I, I wasn't that person who was like set on, I want to be in the arts or I want to be in science. I, want, I just, I never knew. And that was a constant struggle for me. I, I have always loved all different types of creative fields. So I went to school for art. I thought was, well, I'll be a painter and people will, you know, uh, buy all my paintings for millions of dollars. And that's the path for me. And of course, nobody did that. (laughs) (laughs) And I was an okay artist. I wasn't necessarily, you know, someone that, that thrived in that space. I was okay. So that didn't quite work out. Then I went into graphic design and uh, a girlfriend of mine and I, uh, when we were in college, we started our own little graphic design company. It was called Designs of the Times. And we did like little business cards and flyers and that kind of stuff. But I hated it because Whatever I wanted to create creatively, the client might not necessarily want that. So in the end, I just became a tool. So it would be like, no, I don't want my car to look like this. It has to look like this. So I was like, well, I'm not really being creative here. I'm literally just pushing some buttons on a computer. So I got out of that. Um, So I've done, you know, things like that. I, uh, of course, food's a huge passion of mine and my family. I grew up in India, you know, so food is always like 
the number one thing that we talk about at home that sort of we either are fighting about food or loving food or eating food or buying food or, you know, so I did some stuff with food. I did some catering things. I tried to do some lunchbox. So there was many, many, many iterations of things before the first restaurant opened. Mm -hmm. And so when you were opening that first restaurant, like, how are you deciding what you want to put on your menu? And like, (laughs) like, what were those first steps? Yeah, yeah. You know, the key to success is, at least for me, my formula has always been just do it. Just do it. You're never really going to know if this is going to be right, wrong, bad, good, ugly. You just have to do it. You have to have some base for doing what you're doing. So, you know, we had been uh, selling the Moroccan food that we're doing right now at a farmer's market for about three years. So we had some general sense of, okay, what do people like? What is our community like? Yeah, I do a lot of reading. So, I'm, you know, I'm looking at industry trends. You know, are people eating more gluten, less gluten, dairy, healthy, not healthy fat all I'm sort of constantly keeping an eye on what the marketplace is doing and then you have to make an educated guess and to be honest with you Jesse I've made some huge blunders and we've made some like hit it out of the park decisions where you're like really that thing that nobody thought <laughs> right so because you're dealing with the human element and because you're dealing with people and there's no way to call every single person who you think is going to come into your restaurant, you have to make some educated guesses. You have to look at the market. You have to say, well, this restaurant's doing really, really huge. So something I did very early on is I looked at Chinese restaurant menus because the number one ethnic food consumed in America is Chinese food. And I really studied it. And I said, what is about this that works and why and why not? Uh, I studied a lot of chain restaurants, right, like Applebee's and Cheesecake Factory and all of those places to understand why they're working and why not. And, you know, and then I studied our local market. Like what's so after all of that, we sort of came to an understanding. And the first menu was very small. It maybe had like. 15 items on it, maybe even less. And then as people started to come in, we would listen to their feedback, whether they tell you to your face or they let you know on social media or Google or Yelp or any one of those mediums, you will know how people feel. We used to do this lunch dish that was sort of this baked chicken with grapes and stuff. And multiple people told me they're like, we love it, but we're office workers. We wear ties. We can't really work around the bones and all this stuff. We want something fast, easy. We just want to get out of here, right? Which was interesting. And then we switched immediately to uh, a boneless version of that dish. So it's stuff like that. And, you know, you make a mistake, you just pick up and go. It's not the end of the world. I I, I tell my crew all the time, we're not, uh, you know, doing brain surgery. (laughs) I think not spending too much time on thinking about what went wrong, but rather Rather than, okay, taking that feedback and then doing something different. And you just have to be able to really just keep going. So how have the spaces changed since you first opened up? I mean, dramatically, you know, not just in the physicality of the space. Like when we first opened Schenectady, it was this tiny little 800 square foot restaurant, which used to be a diner. My kitchen is, you know, maybe about 100 square feet. Pretty much everyone I was talking to was saying you cannot run a full-service restaurant out of a diner kitchen. Like, it just cannot be done, and you have 30 seats. How are you, you know? So we really had to think about how to make all of that stuff work for us. And eventually, 
you know, we kept expanding the restaurant. So we built a deck, we built a patio and a garden, and then there was a second floor upstairs. So we built that into the restaurant, you know, as we started getting more confident in who we were as restaurateurs and uh, in our ability to actually perform and manage the crowd, so to speak. So now, you know, Schenectady seats about 120 people. It's my largest lo- location. Mm-hmm. So the, the in terms of the physicality, there was a lot of change in that building, but also in terms of who we are in how we present our food and what is the food that we present. And, you know, I've been very, very fortunate and lucky that people have appreciated the style of cooking that I like to do and the ingredients I want to bring into the community are things that nobody else is using and doing. So there is a sense of adventure and there is a sense of sort of newness. I love exploring that, not just for myself, but also for the people coming in is, you know, what are Nigella seeds and what do you, why do you do it this way as opposed to this way and the entire experience. So for me, food is not, ultimately food is about comfort. And when you were looking to expand, how did you identify what would be good places to open up new spaces? Yeah. First of all, we never thought we would expand, honestly. <laughs> I mean, the first restaurant that opened, I never even printed business cards. I never even got a phone line. So that was never in the plans. But then when we first started think, okay, you know, okay, we have something here. Let's see what we can do next. I wanted it to be close enough physically so that I could manage it. Mm-hmm. And that initially that was the biggest goal is how close can we be without cannibalizing the current location, but also so you can get there within 15 to 20 minutes. So if there is something that's going on, then you can get there fast enough. And I have two small children. So keeping all of that in mind, we sort of drew a radius of about 15 miles. And we said, that's sort of our bandwidth. (laughs) And that's how we expanded. So the first location was Troy. Gildalyn is about 14 miles from my house. That's why initially we, we never thought about Saratoga or any other faraway locations, because it's like, well, if something did happen, I'm not going to be able to get there fast enough. Yeah. On the back end, I guess, as you know, you're a manager and stuff like that. Like, yeah. how has it been like uh, bringing other people into your dream and your project? Yeah. And what advice do you have people on that front? You know, I'm an extremely hands off manager. So once you come into the fold, once you've been fully trained, once you sort of have drunk the company Kool Aid, <laughs> I tend to just let people go. Mm-hmm. We have a very tight, small knit crew. But like just incredibly amazing people who are multi-talented on many different facets of the business. And that's what we look for. So, you know, it takes a very special, different kind of person to be able to work in the way we work because we're not a traditional restaurant. We don't operate in the traditional sense of how restaurants operate. Uh, Most of my crew has been with me from the beginning and have grown and expanded as we've grown and expanded, you know. So I think you have to trust the people that you're working with. That's the best advice I can give is if you feel you're the only one who can make the best dish possible, you're never going to expand. How would you say that your restaurant is different from the other ones around you? Yeah. And um, compared to your other businesses, like things you have to keep in mind when you're running a restaurant as opposed yeah. to like another business? Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, good questions. I mean, you know, when I first started the restaurant, I did not want to become a slave to my business. I was already a slave to my job. 
right? Like, I need time with my family. I want to, like, not work on Monday. I had all these weird restrictions that I wanted. So I, I saw then I worked backwards of that. We're probably one of the extreme few restaurants that are only open five hours a day, five and a half hours a day. We do a two and a half hour lunch. Then we shut down for nap time from two to five. And then we're open for a three hour dinner. You know, like someone walked in last night at 8.01 and we were already closed. And we said, no, we're, we're very, very strict with our timing because if I don't have that, then I don't have a personal life. Most restaurants... It baffles me because they're open at 10 in the morning and then they go to 11 at night and it's an incredible amount of hard work and we work five hours a day. So then I had to figure out, well, if I'm going to have these extreme limited hours, then what do I do to make sure that we're making money to sustain the business? Mm -hmm. So then we had to work backwards of that. Well, in order to do that, you have to do X and Y and Z, right? So so we had to come up with a lot of stuff and processes in place. So it's not just about your hours, but then you have to think about what is your process and how do you also interact with the customer, your team, all of those type of things. So when we first opened Schenectady, it was just my husband, myself, my eight-month-old daughter, and like one other employee. That was our staffing. <laughs> You know, and we just did what made sense to us and what we and I was pregnant with my second child. And what I realize now, 12 years into this, is this is what works for us, for my sanity, for my, you know, personal life and work life balance. So that's how we run it. All my locations take a nap time from two to five. And Pretty much everyone who works in the business are people who have children and families and stuff. So they can go leave the restaurant at two, go pick up their kid from school, have snack and dinner with them before. So there's still some life there. How we set up our process is also extremely different. So if there's a really you know talented chef that comes off a line from another traditional restaurant, whether it's a burger place or a uh, Italian restaurant or whatever, it's hard for them to fit into our uh, mold and our system because we're very different. So what's next? What are you planning next for the business? Well, we're expanding, and I would like for this to be an international, national brand. So the next location we have coming up online is New York City. We're hoping for it to be uh, the fall of this year. And then we've already started to put uh, roots down and some feelers out in India because we're uh, planning on doing uh, a few locations over there. You know, the Indian market is just growing and expanding in a massive, massive, massive way. It's the fastest growing food sector in the world right now. Wow. So I'm planning on doing that at some point next year, like at least having that first location open by spring of next year. New York City will be our fifth location. We have a lot of process and a lot of uh, procedures in place and teams that do certain things. So it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's fairly easy, but at least we have a roadmap of how we do things. What's something that you would attribute to your success? And what advice do you have for people who are trying to get into the game? Yeah, you know, um, I'm just stubborn. I'm stubborn. I'm a problem solver. If you keep coming up against the same issue over and over and over, you know, I'll, I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, when we were opening Troy, my husband and I were fighting a lot, a lot. 
of course, there's the stress of you're opening a new location. You don't know what the, what, what you're doing. And, you know, it's scary. Are we ready for it? Are we not? You know, financially, all those kind of things. We were fighting a lot. We had two small children. We had just moved into a new house. I mean, it was just like chaos all the time. And I backed up from that and I said, okay, you know, what's causing all of this, right? And then when we really distilled it down, the issue actually was we needed a second car. <laughs> <laughs> when we when we really sat down to talk about it, it turned out that most of our fight, we only had one car. We never needed a second car and we never thought about it because we were like, oh, I don't go, Baba, whatever. So once we realized that I got myself a car, it was like, you know, this huge cloud lifted off of our life. And I think that's what it is. It's like you have to be a problem solver. If you want to start a business, run a business, want to have your own sanity, want to have some sense of, you know, a personal life. And one of the biggest things I'm extremely proud of more than all my businesses, all of that stuff is the fact that uh, my husband and I have been able to have a good married life for the past 15 years and, you know, have a family life that we feel good about. And, you know, we have children that we feel we've spent time with because that's extremely important. So that's what I would say is like, you know, if you keep coming up against something, take a step back, take a look at it. What is the problem? And sometimes it's not actually what you're looking at. It could be something very different and being able to communicate and articulate that and then solving that is how you keep moving forward. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Is That was all the questions that I have for you off the top of my head. But yeah. is there anything I'm missing that you'd like me to know or that you'd like our listeners to know? A lot of women especially always feel, are we ready to do this? Can we do this? You know, maybe I don't have support. Maybe, And I'm telling you, like, I got support from places where I didn't even know support was available. So I think as women, we have to be able to speak up and ask for help, you know, whether it's from your partner, your family, your community, your friends. I think that's one of the biggest things that I find is different about me than other people is I'm shameless about asking for help. So, you know, if I feel like, oh, Jessie King can help me in something, I will call her. <laughs> And, you know, most people want to help. We want to feel needed. We want to feel helpful. And I have found that I would not be anywhere in life if I did not have a strong group of people who were constantly helping me, neighbors, family members, friends. Ask. Just ask. Anissa Wahid is the chef and owner behind Tara Kitchen, which currently has locations in Schenectady, Troy, and Gilderland, New York, as well as Wildwood, New Jersey. You can learn more at Tara, that's T-A-R-A, kitchen.com. Thanks, Anissa. Absolutely. Thank you. So you consider yourself a problem solver. You have a great idea for a business. But really, where do you start? Our next guest is the Vice President of Business Resources at the Capital Region Chamber of Commerce. Laura Mann offers advice to current business owners in the region, as well as aspiring entrepreneurs. She also oversees the Chamber's regular entrepreneurial boot camp and helps those hoping to become certified as a woman or minority-owned business in New York State. Mann says that for any business, it's important to start with a concrete plan. And that involves research, and that means becoming the expert in 
the type of business you're going to be in your industry if you're a restaurant and the restaurant industry itself, both in your community and then trends at large. And it involves becoming an expert in your target market and in your customers. A lot of businesses sort of think, well, I'm creating this business. If I build it, they will come. And also what I'm making or providing um, as a service or a product, it's for everyone, which isn't true, even though you will sell to anyone. And I guess the other thing that needs to be kept in mind is, you know, a business plan serves multiple purposes. It's a plan for entrepreneurs in order to either develop the business, start the business, take it to the next level, a plan of attack and operation for breaking into a new market or launching a new product, whatever that looks like. It's also used for soliciting additional outside funding, whether to a bank or to outside funders. And the thing that a business plan needs to be is clear and objective. You're really laying out all the steps that you're gonna take and why those are the steps you're gonna take and who you're gonna sell to and how you know that they want what you have and then how you're gonna do that and why you're the best person to do it. Without having that in hand, even if you're gonna go look for funding from other folks, the first thing they're gonna ask you for in that application is gonna be your business plan because it's gonna lay out to them what you're trying to do, who you're trying to sell to, and it's the document that helps them understand, do you really know what you're talking about? Are you you know, a high risk, a medium risk? Can they see the same path that you do? And then therefore line up to be able to give you the funding that you're seeking. Um, do you have any other advice for people who are looking for funding? Like what are the different ways, what are the different options out there for people? A lot of entrepreneurs are under the misconception that there's a lot of grants available. There are seldom grants available for for-profit businesses. You'll see, you know, exceptions to that as with the pandemic and, you know, government making monies available to help alleviate the impact of COVID. But these are exceptions to the rule. The other thing is look for funding, not when you need it, but before. Explore funding options before you're in a position where you need it. You never get access to funding as quickly as, as you either need or, or generally as you might anticipate. So say you've got your business plan, you're able to acquire funding either from yourself or with help from another source. What are the next steps from there? Are there like other kind of legal and registration hurdles that people have to keep in mind? Or is it more of a decision, I guess, of where your business is going to be? Well, it's a combination. Likely before you get funding, you've established the legal entity for it. And that can be as simple as registering your business as a DBA with your county clerk, you know, and then from business formation perspective, IRS will issue your employment identification number. Um, so you would want to seek one of those uh, from the IRS. And you may be engaging with the Department of State because depending on the kind of entity you want to form, you know, an LLC or a C Corp or an S Corp, the paperwork and the process is spelled out and the forms that you need to file is spelled out on the Department of State. Um, when it comes, though, to like licenses and other kinds of regulations and compliance, that tends to be more industry and business specific. Not all businesses have a one size fits all for, for what they need to um, do in terms of either registration or compliance outside of the general business stuff. So um, mm -hmm. a really good resource for this uh, for businesses in New York State that are thinking about um, establishing an entity to do business would be to check out um, a resource called New York Business Express. And it's sort of a hub spot that New York State has created 
and it really gives you a good lay of the lands. And they've also built into it um, sort of a natural language search feature where, you know, whatever business it is that you're looking to establish in New York State, you can type it in, identify sort of the business category that fits into it, and it will begin to pull up what kinds of compliance licenses and registrations are needed for that type of business. It's not a 100% guarantee that, that it's completely, um, you know, completely comprehensive. It mostly pertains to New York State. It does give some guidance on whether the uh, business should also consider consulting federal sources as well as their own um, municipal sources, you know, depending on the type of business, but it's a good starting point. And, you know, at the end of the day, the business owner is responsible for knowing this information. So um, it's something that, you know, at the chamber that we can kind of help guide people with and point them in the right direction if they just absolutely have no idea where to start. Just lastly, like, what are some, I guess, the biggest mistakes or myths that people follow when they're starting a business? People don't go into business usually because they love the aspects of running a business and they're anxious to get it going. You know, taking a shortcut around doing the business development planning and developing a, a business plan is um, a common mistake because it's not involving all of the creative aspects or many of the things that the entrepreneur initially you know, wanted to get in business to do. Um, so that's a big underestimation and, and can't emphasize enough the importance of planning. You're gonna commit your life to this business and your resources to it. It always takes more time and money than you think it will, inevitably. A lot of folks overlook speaking with people about their ideas. They don't want somebody else to run with their idea or steal it. But this often prevents them from doing a couple key things, which is floating the idea out there to get that feedback that they need that's going to shape what they have into a better business. You know, you need to talk with a lot of people. You need to talk with your prospective customers and you need to get as much feedback from people who have started businesses, people who are professional service providers, and, and take that all in as information that's going to help you, you know, shape the most successful business you can have. And that's important. Developing that support system of mentorship and sort of understanding that even if you can do everything in your business, you probably shouldn't be doing everything in your business if you want it to be successful. You probably can do your accounting, but at the end of the day, you're the face of your business. You have to recognize what your strengths are, what you love to do, and then understand that you're the person who's going to create your business pipeline. You have to be the face of the business and you probably have to be the production side. So if you're spending a lot of time in areas where you could bring in resources to help you in this process and develop and grow the business, then you're probably shortchanging it. And you're probably ultimately, even though you may be doing this to save some money, you're probably not positioning the business to grow as quickly as it could either. You know, it's a trade-off. Well, thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate it. Uh, is there anything else that I'm missing that you'd like me to know or that you'd like our listeners know? Anything that like maybe like the Capital Region Chamber offers to help? I encourage anyone who has any questions or is thinking about starting a business to reach out. I'd be that point of contact. Uh, our website has contact information for all of us. Um, we do have, you know, an entrepreneur boot camp that helps entrepreneurs develop their business plans. Uh, we bring in about 50 plus professional service providers throughout this 12 week course. We run that twice a year. It's a great way, you know, to do something that's often very daunting to do on your own. 
from technical assistance to assistance with getting your certification as an MWBE in New York State or exploring our loans options for small businesses. We're always here, we're always a resource. Laura Mann is the Vice President of Business Resources at the Capital Region Chamber of Commerce. To learn more about the Chamber and its programs, go to CapitalRegionChamber.com. You've been listening to 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Ellen Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Anissa Wahid and Laura Mann for taking part in this week's episode. To learn more about our guests and the show in general, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Next week, we're taking a break from our Women in Business series to, of course, recognize Mother's Day. But until then, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. At night and down the hallway. Sweet.